I'm your host, Cullen, and this is Cauldron, a military history podcast. And in today's episode, we're covering the Battle of the Schellenberg Heights, otherwise known as the Battle of Donnaworth in 1704. housekeeping here at the top. I apologize for the delay in between shows. Uh, Life got kind of hectic there, somewhat of a, uh, as TR would call it, a crowded hour, but everything's all good, and uh, now we are back to recording and getting out the shows, ideally on a weekly Monday uh, uh, schedule moving forward. So look for Monday mornings or Monday afternoons for, for shows coming out in the future. Uh, thanks for hanging in there, and if you get a chance, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe, and share the show as much as you can. The bigger the audience, the more fun this gets for everybody. So, Schellenberg Heights is a really interesting, smaller engagement in what is one of the great campaigns in history, and it is a appetizer to the... Battle of Blenheim, which is one of the great battles in history. So we're going to cover the Battle of Schellenberg Heights, otherwise known as the Battle of Donworth, as kind of a lead-in to Blenheim, which is actually going to be a two-parter. It's such a big battle. There's so much going on, and there's so many personalities that I want to dive into. I don't want to do that in this episode. I want to do that as part of the Battle of Blenheim, so we're going to split that particular one and make it a two-parter. Not the first two-parter we've done, but the first one we've done in a long time. So be prepared for that. May will be, uh, the rest of May will just round off with Blenheim. With Schellenberg, it's really important, I think, to take a second before we dive into the details of the battle. We're going to hear from some historic figures about their first-hand accounts, and we're also going to check in with my boy Winston. He's got a little bit to say. So before we get there, I want to... I want you to start thinking about a thing called the forlorn hope, which I know sounds like a, an, you know, a 90 or an 80s uh, metal rock band that could open for Black Sabbath or, or Metallica. Uh, but it is actually the group of people who would be either chosen or volunteer to attack a defensive position first. So the Forlorn Hope is sent against a enemy's position, usually a defended wall or a, a fort, and they are sent there to initiate an attack, an assault on the walls. And this is once we get to the Gunpowder Age, which is where we're at for the Battle of Schellenberg Heights. This is incredibly incredibly deadly and destructive because the forlorn hope has really no recourse other than to just walk straight up to whatever position that the general is trying to suss out where the guns are and where they're strongest and weakest. Uh, They basically, their only option is to just walk up to it. And the role that they play is, again, to test that position, not just for weak points, but maybe more importantly for a guy like Marlborough or whoever the commander is, the Forlorn Hope's job is to attack and and seek out the strong points. That's really what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be taking heavy casualties. They're supposed to be dying because that allows the general to... You know, out in the back there, he's got his telescope and he's he's watching the walls, he's watching the gun emplacements, and he's figuring out exactly where the strongest point on that defensive position is so that he knows where not to attack in the future. But it's also a matter of they have to be out there long enough for the defensive position to be fully engaged. So a forlorn hope that just runs up there, takes a couple cannonballs, and then runs away 
doesn't really do anybody any good. It really defeats the purpose. The purpose is that forlorn hope taking that 100-plus yard walk, slow and steady, to the enemy position the whole way, getting blasted by musketry, by cannon fire, by uh, grape shot, all the nastiest, most destructive things that the defenders of the fortress can throw at it, they are they are just inundating this forlorn hope. And it's at the Battle of Schellenberg where we see uh, we see a forlorn hope that is is really impressive in terms of discipline. I think it's amazing. I can still not really fully wrap my head around how it's one thing to get people to do a task in unison, like marching or, uh, you know, moving in time to each other and, and to the tune of a drum or, or a fiddle, whatever it might be. It is entirely different to have people doing that while taking fire. And in more so, I think it's, it's absolutely mind blowing when, especially in this time period, you have blocks of men standing in line in row and they aren't moving at least if you're marching you have it in your head that you're you're moving towards your objective you're you have a greater chance because you aren't in the same spot you were 30 seconds ago and so while they're reloading you've moved and and that might be the difference between life and death when when a unit in this time period is forced to stand still and just take the fire of the enemy, that blows me away. And we'll get to that in a a few minutes because the defenders, at at one point here during the Battle of Schellenberg, the defenders actually do that, and we have a firsthand account of what that was like. But so as we're covering this battle, start to think about what it would be, what it would take for you to be a member of the Forlorn Hope. Uh, These guys were awarded... Sometimes they were awarded monetary uh, gain. They were given pick of the pick their choice of the plunder from the city if it falls. They were given awards, titles, battlefield commissions could be a thing. Uh, so there is a little bit of mobility that this kind of life and death decision might give you in society that was still back then extremely structured you know if you're born one way you're definitely most likely you're going to die in that cast or whatever that position in society was something like the forlorn hope might give you the opportunity to move up in society which maybe that's worth it for you maybe you're the type of person that's the bragging rights and the the, the ability to say I was the first person to enter the fort or a lot of times that would be one of the, the guiding rules here with the forlorn hope is the man who puts his hand first on the, the enemy's wall or puts his first, uh, the, the first person to walk through the enemy wall. There's sometimes there's that kind of guideline of who gets the actual uh, prize or sword or, or title or whatever it might be. So what would be tempting to you? I'm not sure that there's anything that would tempt me into joining a group with the name Forlorn in it, uh, especially not the Forlorn Hope. I'm pretty sure that in my mind that's uh, not worth whatever possible uh, award or, or reward that that might come with. But maybe it's something that you, uh, there are braver people out there than me, that is for sure. So as we're talking about this battle, think about the forlorn hope. Think about what it would take for you to join a group like that. And again, remember, their job is to, to test the enemy's strength. So they are literally trying to get shot out by as much of the enemy's guns as possible so that those guns can then be marked by the generals uh, behind the line. And they can try and suss out the, the appropriate form of or position to attack them. That, uh, again, is, is just crazy to me that people would do that. But 
throughout history that's been done over and over and over. So uh, it's not necessarily outside the, the realm of human experience. It's just something that's outside of, of my experience, and thankfully so. So we've talked about the forlorn hope, something to just kind of populate the back of your head while you're thinking about Schellenberg and as we move forward. And while we move forward, we really need to resituate ourselves in history here, just so it's, it's been a little while, so let's kind of figure out where we are now. It's 1704. The War of the Spanish Succession has been going on for a few years. This is the war that was fought between the Grand Alliance and Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King of France. It was an attempt to prevent what's called the Double Crown. The Double Crown would be the joining of the King of of France and the King of Spain together in union and having one person rule both kingdoms, what now is actually, at this point in time, both empires. Uh, because that's what really what Louis is after when he is going for the Spanish crown. It's not so much the Iberian Peninsula, uh, although that's great. What he really wants is, is the Spanish Netherlands, the Italian parts of the Spanish Empire, and the Spanish Main. And that is what we talked about, I think, to some extent last week or the, or the last episode. And it's really about the the commercial aspect of the Spanish Main that Louis is excited because that's where you're getting incredible amounts of silver. Uh, you're getting a fair amount of gold. You're getting a ton of raw materials. And you are seeing the, the beginnings of the wealth that will be generated by things like the coffee trade, the chocolate or cocoa trade, and ultimately you're starting to see rice, cotton, and sugar. Those three cash crops that are going to be huge over the next 150 years. By 1704, uh, early 1700s, Louis the Sun King is, is very interested in acquiring as much of those commercial trade at colonies that Spain has in the New World as he can get his hands on. And Louis the King of France is the absolutist of absolute rulers. He is the man who claimed that he was the state. So keep in mind who, who we're dealing with on this end. The summing up of, of the War of the Spanish Succession is probably left to better minds than mine. So I'm going to read from Winston Churchill's The History of the English-Speaking People, uh, and just bring us to date on where we are in time and what this means. So he says, in what I think is one of his best works, uh, I, I love my copy of The History of the English-Speaking People, so if you get a chance, you should check it out. And nobody quite writes history like Winston. I'm not sure. It's, it's definitely not considered academic nowadays, um, but it's entertaining. So, he says, quote, No great war was ever entered upon with more reluctance on both sides than the war of the Spanish succession. Europe was exhausted and disillusioned, but overall hung the long-delayed, long-dreaded, ever-approaching demise of the Spanish crown and the partitioning of the Spanish empire, which included the southern Netherlands, much of Italy, and a large part of the New World. There were three claimants, much was at stake. The feeble life candle of the childless Spanish king burned low in the socket. To the ravages of deformity and disease were added the most grievous afflictions of the mind. All the nations waited in suspense upon his failing pulses and deepening mania. Charles had now reached the end of his torments, but within his diseased frame, his clouded mind, his superstitious soul, Trembling on the verge of eternity, there glowed one imperial thought, the unity of the Spanish Empire. He was determined to proclaim with his last gasp that his vast dominions should pass intact and entire to one prince and to one alone. In the end, he was persuaded to sign a will leaving his throne to the Duke of Anjou. This will was completed on October 7th, and couriers galloped with the news from Escoria to Versailles. On November 1st, 1700, Charles II of Spain expired. 
Louis XIV had now reached one of the great turning points in the history of France. On November 16th, a famous scene was enacted at Versailles. Louis, at his sleeve, presented the Spanish ambassador to the Duke of Anjou, saying, quote, You may salute him as your king. End quote. The ambassador gave vent to his celebrated indiscretion, quote, There are no more Pyrenees. End quote. And so that's Churchill. Uh, it's always a wonder to, to read his words. I, I think he's the most entertaining historian of all time. But what he's telling us here is nobody wanted this war because the 1600s, especially the last 50 years of the 1600s, you saw Europe in utter turmoil. The Thirty Years' War was in the mid-1600s. That is, I, I think it's up there still like number three or four for the deadliest wars ever fought. Uh, millions, maybe as many as 30 million people died in those wars throughout Europe. Uh, it is one of the more, un again, another one, I say it all the time, but I think it's an under-recorded, under-reported, and under-talked about war in the United States, and probably I would, I would contend in Europe as well, because so much happens after that overshadows it. But the Thirty Years' War really sets the table for everything that comes after it. So uh, something to look into, and we'll cover some battles in the future. Uh, that's where you have the, the Swedish line, Gustavus Adolphus. So lots to cover there. But that's why Europe was so exhausted. You had the Thirty Years' War, and then you had a number of smaller wars between European powers. You had revolutions. The English were exhausted. They had just tried to, uh, or not tried, they'd successfully ousted their king, and then they had the Glorious Revolution, and they brought in William of Orange, and he had to fight a number of battles to assert himself, and small wars to assert his throne. So there's just, there's, and the, the Spanish had spent the last hundred years trying to put the Netherlands in its rightful position, basically telling it to mind its P's and Q's and pay homage to Madrid. The Dutch and English had fought, I think, three, maybe four wars between each other. Everybody in Italy was fighting everybody in Italy. And the Holy Roman Empire, again, had spent the mid part of the 1600s eating itself alive with the Thirty Years' War. So nobody was in a fighting mood in 1700. And Louis of France was always willing to fight but it usually was not wise he was he was pretty renowned for entering into wars that his country could little afford and even um, less arm itself or or, or provide a, a real reason why it had to fight that war other than louis wanted them to fight so that's where we are before the war starts charles ii of spain churchill again really puts a, a twist on the whole story. He doesn't come out and say he was this inbred uh, creature, but he, he lets you know that that's the case by calling him the uh, tormented soul and, and the, the failing pulses and deepening mania. It just It very evocatively uh, brings to mind someone who is kind of monstrous, uh, which, again, I think we covered it in Vigo Bay. Might not be the case. That might be history giving it... Uh, shading in a little bit on on Charles II, but he dies heirless. Uh, in his will, he gives it to Philip of Anjou, who's the grandson of Louis, the King of France, and also the person that Louis, the King of France, wants the throne to go to. Yada, yada, yada. Fast forward. Uh, the British, the Dutch, and the Holy Roman Empire, they form the Grand Alliance to make sure that that double crown event does not occur. Basically, what they want to do is they want to force France to accept their person, who is uh, another Charles, and they want him to be the, the Spanish king. But even if that, that doesn't happen, they want the future king of Spain, Philip of Anjou, to renounce any birthright to the title of king of France. So... They're almost willing to say, look, we'll allow this guy, your grandson, to be the king of Spain if he comes out and publicly signs to 
a, a document to the effect that he, upon the death of Louis, the Sun King, will not claim his or will not press his claim to the Fr- the French king, uh, the, the French throne. Sorry, that doesn't happen for obvious reasons. Louis is not going to allow that to occur, so the war begins. Fast forward to 1704, there's been very little movement in this war. A lot of back and forth fighting. Louis has spent the last 60 years of his reign building the fortress of France. So there are these incredible star forts all along the border with the Netherlands, with the, uh, the, the Rhineland area along the borders with southern Italy, or, or I'm sorry, northern Italy, southern France. There's Vauban, who I talked about again last week, last time we talked, and he's one of the great minds in, in, in military history. He went really heavy on, on building forts and re, uh, resituating the fortresses that France already had and kind of designed France into being this incredibly tough nut to crack. It's like a pre-Maginot line type of of defensive structure where there's layers to forts and you have defense in depth being used on on a national scale Uh, so even if the grand alliance is able to make some progress in one area by the time they get through they're they're probably going to exhaust themselves on the next series of forts Uh, and that whole process allows the french to pull up their armies and either bring them to help defeat that army or use that army to attack somewhere else where the Grand Alliance can't quite defend itself. So the the French are very capable at prolonging this war. And they don't necessarily want to press it home because it's it's their concern is more about bleeding the enemy white. But in 1703 the Duke of Marlborough, the commander of the Grand Alliance forces, he's an Englishman, he has a plan to strike against the Moselle River. And that's in northern France. And this is his idea is, is we've got to get some movement on this this on this war. And if we can take a really fast moving approach and, and strike lightning fast and hard at this Moselle River area, the French are probably not going to be able to react quick enough to stop them, and this might be a knockout blow. Now, Marlboro is a proponent of the decisive action. He is a man of action and a strong believer that you can win a war in a day. You can. He's the kind of guy, if you're playing baseball, he's trying to hit a home run every swing. That's Marlboro's strategy is... Get me on the field with the enemy's main army. I'll knock him out, and then the war will be over in a day. Now, he knows that that's not technically going to happen. He understands that you have to accumulate victories, and you have to really win warfare on a number of levels. There's an economic level. There's a home front level. There's the, the strategic level. There's a naval aspect. So he understands that, but... He does truly believe that if you get the enemy's main army and you can wrangle with them on the field, then the odds are you're going to be able to win that war. And he's not wrong, as events will play out. Or at least in this time period, he's not wrong. So, Marlborough's plan is to strike at the Moselle. Now, one of the major allies of the Grand Alliance at the beginning of the war was the electorate of Bavaria, the Kingdom of Bavaria, a member of the Holy Roman Empire and a lo- larger, more important member of the Roman of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. In 1702 or 1703, I don't recall exactly when, but at some point the Kingdom of Bavaria flips to the side of Louis the Sun King, who I believe says to the king, the elector of Bavaria, he says, look, if we win this thing, I'll make you the Holy Roman Emperor, and then your line will be in control of the Holy Roman Empire for in perpetuity. So it's a, it's a really big reward, you know, if they win. 
but the risk is pretty high because the kingdom of Bavaria is kind of out there on its own. It's got the enemy on a number of different sides, and it is going to be very difficult for the French to link up with it to support it if it becomes a target of the Grand Alliance. Well, in 1704, Marlborough, looking at the map, realizes, oh, well, Bavaria, the Kingdom of Bavaria, if they can get armies into Bavaria, then the French might be able to march on Vienna. And if they march on Vienna, they can knock out the Holy Roman Empire. And if the Holy Roman Empire is knocked out, the Dutch are going to follow soon behind and make peace. And that would leave England alone. So... As they have seen that situation over and over in their history, and Marlborough's one of the, the main guys in history who, who recognizes it early and then goes about making sure that that doesn't happen. So he comes up with this plan, this incredible march to the, to the protection and the saving of Vienna. And I'm going to find a quote in... J.F.C. Fuller's uh, Military History of the Western World, there's a 250-mile march where Marlborough does some incredible stuff. He He has to make sure that the French don't realize what his end goal is too soon. Because if they if they figure out where he's headed and why he is heading there, then they might not shadow him they might just immediately send their armies into bavaria to support the elector of bavaria and if they can do that then then this march to the vienna area is going to maybe speed up the destruction of the grand alliance because then the french are working on a different timetable so what marlboro does is he makes this incredible 250 mile march over a, over a few weeks and the whole time he's moving east west while moving south so he's going back and forth crossing rivers headed towards one city and then heading away from it fainting towards one fortress and then heading away from it and this allows marlborough a couple of things it allows him to get a better gauge on what the french response is going to be as he's moving it also allows him to figure out exactly where in bavaria he wants to attack the bavarian army but also where he wants to maybe eventually bring the french to battle for that big decisive engagement that he so loves so he's planning this and he's also making these moves but he's doing some really fascinating stuff in terms of logistics so marlboro again one of the great minds in military history, he really recognizes that a happy army, a full army, a well-rested army is in, in every aspect better than one that is not, which is obvious to us, but it's really hard to do that, especially at this time period. It's really hard to keep an army fed and on the move and rested all at the same time over months. But Marlboro is apparently incredibly good at his job and is able to do that and again i'm quoting from a a quote in uh, jfc fuller's military history of the western world volume two from the defeat of the spanish armada to the battle of waterloo and he's quoting a soldier in marlboro's army as saying quote we frequently marched three sometimes four days successively and halted a day We generally began our march about three in the morning, proceeded about four leagues, or four and a half each day, and reached our ground about nine. As we marched through the countries of our allies, commissaries were appointed to furnish us with all manner of necessaries for man and horse. These were brought to the ground before we arrived, and the soldiers had nothing to do but to pitch their tents, boil their kettles, and lie down to rest." Surely never was such a march carried on with more order and regularity and with less fatigue both to man and horse. End quote. So you've got in a time where the fastest moving thing is going to be a horse, 
you've got this guy planning out exactly where his campaign is going to take his army in a way that allows him to have mess halls set up and ready to roll once the army shows up. So that guys that have just been marching all day don't have to then dig entrenchments and and figure out forage and, and get their food situated. They literally just can sit down, throw, you know, throw their tent out, start a little fire, sit down, hang out, eat their food, get some rest, and then they're up and at it again the next day. That's an incredible achievement uh, in military history and in this time period especially. Usually it's quite the opposite. You're, you're reading an account where the army is straggling its way uh, along. It's, it's starving. There's no water. The animals are dying. Everything is just this, you know, constant misery for the guys actually dealing with it. Not the case for Marlboro's men, which is probably why they fought so hard for him. So he's making this 250-mile uh, march to save Vienna. And not just save Vienna, but the, the real concern is either we have to knock Bavaria out of this war or we have to convince the elector of Bavaria that he's got to turn back to the Grand Alliance. So there's a dual aspect to Marlborough's mission here, that he's got two objectives, and, and they are in large part one and two. Number one being save Vienna. Number two, get the, the elector of Bavaria back on the, good, on, the, on the team of the good guys. But in order to get to Vienna to save it, he's got to go through Bavaria. So that secondary objective actually becomes the primary one in the process of him making his way to Vienna. Marlboro realizes he needs a position that will allow him to access both the north and the south bank of the Danube. He also needs a strong defensive position somewhere along the march to Vienna that will give him the ability to maintain his line of communications. It will allow him to hold the defensive position if need be. If he's pressed, he'll have a good spot where he can kind of settle in. And one of those spots is a town called Donnerworth. It's at the confluence of the Wernitz and the Danube rivers. So it's a, a river village or river city that uh, would be not important if it didn't have what's called the Schellenberg Heights, which overlooks it. If you control the Schellenberg Heights, you control Donnerworth, which means you control this part of the river in this area. So Marlborough knows that that's what he wants. And we know that it wasn't new information to Marlborough or Max Emanuel, the Elector of Bavaria, that this position needed to be held. In fact, it was the, the the very same hill was at one point fortified by Adolphus Gustavus, the Swedish king that was the large, large uh, kind of the, the biggest, most influential character in the Thirty Years' War. And he had a fort on there, and, and at the time of the Battle of Schellenberg in 1704, there were the bones of that structure still up there. And they had fallen into disrepair over the ensuing decades. And the French had a, uh, a kind of consulting general who was with Max Emmanuel, the Elector of Bavaria. And he said to him, look, hey, you're going to need that fort to get re." Uh, re refitted if you if you want to really hold a, a candle or a, you know if you if you want a legitimate chance in defending yourself against an invading army of the Grand Alliance this Schellenberg fort is going to need to get some work done to it and the Bavarian elector ignored that advice at first and then once it was recognized that Marlborough was in fact headed for Vienna and that Bavaria was a target of Marlborough's army. The elector of Bavaria scrambled. He had foolishly sent men into northern Italy instead of focusing on the much larger threat of Marlborough and the Grand Alliance. So he scrambles and he sends a major, uh, major Darko, 
a or I'm sorry, Count Darko, who's a kind of a career soldier but of no great reputation. He sends him straight to Donnerworth and says, you've got to get this fort up and, and running. You have to get it operational before Marlborough and the army of the Grand Alliance get there. Darko does his best. He's got about 24 hours and they're cranking away. They do a fairly good job of getting the defenses on the Schellenberg height back up into fighting order. And Schellenberg is, like I said, it's this high ground overlooking Donnerworth. So whoever controls it controls trade on the city. They, they control the city. Uh, and its defenses are really both man-made and natural. The, the eastern and northern part of the defenses are natural. They're the swamps and, and deeply, thickly wooded region that is around uh, the northern part of, of the city. And the southern part is the river. And the southeast and southwest are both kind of covered by the river. So really the only way to attack it is from the northwest corner. And even there, it's connected to the city with this this uh, line of walls, which was really in in bad shape. But as the French engineers and the Bavarian soldiers are trying to speed up the 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 work they are are working extremely hard and diligently to make this fort viable again marlboro sees this he shows up uh the july 2nd they camp about 15 miles away from donaworth and that is where marlboro realizes a couple things he realizes that uh if he doesn't take this fort, he'll have a huge problem because then all of the enemy armies will be able to kind of converge on him, surround him, and he won't really have an escape. And if he doesn't take it quickly, if he tries to put it under siege, that fort is going to just get stronger and stronger. So it really is imperative, A, that he takes the city, and B, that he takes it quickly. So what Marlboro plans is for an assault. And this is where what we talked about earlier, that forlorn hope comes into effect. Because in order for him to take this city and the heights of Schellenberg quickly, he, he doesn't have time to figure out with intelligence works and spies. He doesn't have the time to set up a plan, a plan based on intel gathered beforehand. He's basically just got to throw his men at the walls and hope eventually that he picks the right place and the walls are crack and his, his men are able to make it their way over. When Marlborough left for his 250-mile march to southern Germany, he has in the vicinity of 50,000 men, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. When he gets to Donaworth, he's met up with the with the elector of uh, the Margrave of, of Baden. And so he's, he's bolstered his army. When he gets to Donworth, he takes a vanguard of 20, 22, somewhere around there, 22,000, and they march on the city to take the Schellenberg Heights. Facing them are 13,000, maybe 14,000 French and Bavarian soldiers and 16 guns. When he realizes that he's got to just do an assault, uh, the it, it almost simplifies his situation because he realizes, all right, well, I, I don't have to worry about the setting up defenses or creating a fort or anything like that. It's pretty straightforward. This is an all-or-nothing kind of battle. We have to take this fort or we are not going to be able to stay here. It won't be a tenable situation, and we'll have to figure out a way back to the safety of the Dutch Republic. The other thing, too, about that march, that 250-mile march, the Dutch were adamant that he not leave them. He didn't. The Dutch were afraid that he would get too far away to be able to help them if they got under attack. And so not only was he trying to keep the, the French in 
the dark on where he was going and what he was doing, but he also had to keep his allies in the dark. So another aspect that makes that whole march really fascinating. But uh, July 2nd, he gets outside the city of Donnerworth with the vanguard of his 20,000-man army, and the quartermaster starts to go about the mapping out of a, a, a camp. Now, this is just deception because it was never going to happen. Marlborough never had any intention of camping outside of Donnerworth. But it works because the Count of Count Darko or Count of Arco, he figures, okay, well, they're planning on putting the Schellenberg Heights under siege, so this is going to take a while. So although he tells his men to continue their digging and their entrenching and their, their working on the walls, he himself goes down to the city for lunch and doesn't worry too much about it. Now, as the day is going along and the morning turns into late morning, midday, it becomes apparent that the, the Grand Alliance is not intending on putting the Schellenberg Heights under siege at all. In fact, they are lining up in two columns to attack the walls on the Schellenberg Heights. So the first assault is really uh it's 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 a failure but it it does achieve the forlorn hope goal of of sussing out where the enemy gun positions are and how much they have and exactly to what use they are going to be put there's a french uh, french soldier in the fort whose name is de la colonie or cologne and he leaves a first-hand account of what happens before the assault. And it's pretty pretty brutal, but it's worth reading because it really relays how violent these battles could be. And again, we talked about it earlier, but there's a group of men standing in formation and just taking a beating because the British bring up their own guns and a little artillery fire begins uh, a cannonade that goes back and forth and the French start to get the the worse of it. Colonnet writes, quote, I made a point of impressing upon my men the necessity of attention to orders and of prompt obedience in carrying out any maneuvers during the action with courage and in good order. I assured them that herein lay our safety and perhaps victory. I had scarcely finished speaking with when the enemy's battery opened fire upon us and raked us through and through. They concentrated their fire upon us and with their first discharge carried off Count La Bastide, the lieutenant of my own company, with whom at the moment I was speaking, and twelve grenadiers who fell side by side in the ranks, so that my coat was covered with brains and blood. So accurate was the fire that each discharge of the cannon stretched some of my men on the ground, I suffered agonies at seeing these brave fellows perish without a chance of defending themselves, but it was absolutely necessary that they should not move from their post, end quote. That gives you an idea of the kind of obedience that these guys were enforced to have because they are willing to stand there without moving as cannonballs are ripping through their columns, tearing people apart, misting them, turning them into just pieces of humans so truly very brave and stupid and horrible and all those things the first assault is led by a dutch general gur who also dies in this process at the end of the battle we'll find out that the the grand alliance loses a ton of high-ranking officers uh, which they the forlorn hope you need officers to be there, A, to ensure that the men keep moving and are being lost in a usable fashion. So they're not breaking and running as soon as things kind of go sideways. Uh, so you also need those officers to get their eyes on and hopefully get back to you and tell you, oh, this is what I saw up close. This is where I think we can hit them. So often, more often than not, the Forlorn Hope has a, a higher percentage of high-ranking officers than you might normally think for that kind of a mission. The first assault goes horrifically. 
the British are mowed down as they're marching forward. They are really taking a beating. They bring what's called facines with them, which is a bundle of sticks that have been tied together. The idea being that when you come to an enemy trench, because this is the, the Schellenberg Fortress is really formidable. It's a wall. In front of the wall, there's a parapet. At the base of that, there's a trench. There's all sorts of, of defensive structures that they have to cross, that the, the Grand Alliance soldiers have to cross in order to get to the enemy just to... to get across that stuff it's going to take a lot and these facings are meant to be thrown into ditches and trenches and if everybody brings one and everybody throws them in then eventually you've filled up that trench and you, now you can just walk across it well this time of year in 1704 it was unseasonably rainy and so there are these little rivulets and, and streams that are kind of crisscrossing the battlefield and the first assault they they get confused. They think that the rivers are what the fascines are supposed to be used for. So the men are throwing their fascines into these little creeks and riverbeds. Then they get to the actual trench and there's a holdup because uh, we don't have anything to cross it. Now we've got to climb down, march across and climb up the other side. That all takes time. And the problem with this this particular time period in warfare is is interesting and unique because men are under fire and the, the tactics of fire and movement haven't even remotely come about yet. So you're very much a matter of just standing in line waiting for the people in front of you to move. And as you're waiting, you're under fire. And that just gets really, really deadly if there's any kind of hold up at the front it's 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 i always come i think the most visual or or kind of evocative thing that you can think of is the battle of the somme where we have it in our cultural zeitgeist in our mind's eye lines of of men just standing there waiting for one guy to get through that little hole in the barbed wire and everybody behind him is just waiting to get through and also potentially under machine gun fire this is what constant, this, this is exactly what war was like up until the 1850s all the time. So it wasn't, it sticks in our mind in, in the psalm because it was such a horrific mixing of, of time periods and invention and, and war and all that. But that's really what war was always like up until the modern day. And that's what we see here. That first assault slows down. The Allies are taking heavy, heavy musket fire. Grape shot is ripping through them, which is basically just a giant shotgun. And instead of bird shot, it's, it's musket balls and it's mowing men down left and right. The grenadiers, the French grenadiers that are on the fort are also throwing their grenades down the hill which these early grenades are are really nasty looking they are just a, a metal ball usually a small cannonball that's been hollowed out gunpowder and and other little shrapnel bits have been put inside and then a wooden cork with a little bit of of tallow on a rag popping out the other end it's very very rudimentary in terms of what they look like but it they're, they're really deadly and so these start getting tossed over the walls and they're rolling down and adding to the chaos of the grape shot and the musketry you also have a time period here where we're about to see and and i'll get to it in a moment but it's a interesting time period because this is where bayonets play a role so the first assault fails the second assault proves to be just as ineffective the second assault leaves a bunch of of the allied soldiers dead they've broken ranks they run in confusion and and chaos and it at this point it must have looked to marlboro like this was a terrible idea like he rushed into this he might have overthought 
himself here. He 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 maybe he could had time to actually put a siege up or or do something other than bash your head up against an enemy's dug in fortified position. The second assault fails, but as it's failing, something else is occurring. The the force of soldiers from the Margrave of Baden, they are moving along the... Basically, they're moving to the right of Marlborough. So they're in between Marlborough's forces and the River Wernitz. And as they're moving along, they are going to strike that defensive wall that combines or connects the city of Donnerworth and the Schellenberg Heights. They are about to strike that when they realize that it's pretty poorly defended because the French soldiers and the Bavarian soldiers that were meant to defend that portion of the line have actually retreated into the city of Donnerworth itself and are firing on the Margrave's forces from the safety, the relative safety of the city. But that means that that defensive line that connects the two positions of the French and Bavarians is now, for all intents and purposes, it's empty. So the Margrave pierces that wall fairly quickly, and then he takes a hard left. Now, he could have taken a right and gone at Donnerworth the city and tried to take the city from that position. Probably wouldn't have been successful. But what he does is he recognizes that Marlborough's attacks on the Schellenberg Heights have to succeed in order for this whole operation to be worth it. So he's going to take a left and walk up the line of that wall and pretty easily walk into the rear rear southern section of the Schellenberg Height Fort without the Bavarians and the French on top of the fort really knowing what was happening. It seems like, and Colonnay uh, writes about this in his first-hand account, he says he didn't know what was happening. He thought that the enemy was was maybe reinforcements that had come to help them, and so they didn't actually fire on the Margrave's army or, or the Margrave's force until they were in the fort and within within short, short range. The French grenadiers that noticed this first, which were Colonnais' men, they begin a, a, a really brutal fight to try and survive here because they recognize that this is, this is the make-or-break moment. Uh, Marlborough's men also begin another round of assaults once they realize that the Margraves made contact and is in the rear of the enemy. So now the Bavarians and the French are being attacked from both sides. This is when the, the bayonet comes in because uh, up until relatively recently in in history in this period you could you had what was called a plug bayonet so you couldn't fire and stab uh, it was either a shoot or a stab weapon um, the the advances in bayonet technology eventually get to a point where now you can do both and you have access to both types uh, there's Colonel Holm wrote in uh, Stray Military Papers, 1897, The introduction of the bayonet marks the end of the medieval and the beginning of modern war. Tactics were revolutionized by a dagger some 12 inches long. And they really were, because now you've got the ability to fire from 30 feet away, 20 feet away, 10 feet away, you could even get off a volley, and then march in with the blade. Now, it's it's a misconception that in the age of Napoleon, there were a lot of bayonet charges. It doesn't seem like there were a lot of battles decided by bayonet charges. In fact, it's pretty rare, because if you think about it, it's very difficult to convince somebody to shoot another human being. Stabbing them is entirely uh, another... Uh, can of worms so convincing a large group of people to uh, get really close to their their victim and and stab them to death with a tiny little blade is it's a tall order and 
this is the nexus period where you start to where you, you really see the end of the old world and the beginning of the new on a, on so many different levels but this is a, like a microcosm where you see it at a very micro level just the bayonet is a huge change in war and it it comes into play at the battle of schellenberg in a big way because once the walls are breached by the uh, margrave's forces and marlborough starts to put more pressure on than the French and the Bavarian forces behind the walls of Schellenberg collapse. They completely panic and they scramble to try and get away. And you can't really blame them because again, what they are witnessing is just this massacre. And it's a massacre where a lot of the, the people dying are, are being stabbed to death by bayonets. Uh, the southern part of the fort, there's a little pontoon bridge that was going across the Danube, and the survivors of the defenses try their best to make it to that pontoon boat. They do, and then that pontoon boat or pontoon bridge collapses, and hundreds of men will drown in the Danube trying to get away. The the defenders of the city also make their way and try and get away as quickly as possible. The entire French and Bavarian position collapses. About five to 6,000 French and Bavarians are killed or drowned in the process. Another three or 4,000 are captured. And it is a huge, huge victory because, again, it gives great, great communications and reinforcements and the ability to protect his line of communications uh, is, is strengthened. So he's got, Marlborough has a great victory on his hands, but it's not a cheap one. He loses about 1,500 men dead and another four, maybe 5,000 wounded, uh, which if you consider the enemy's strength and their losses, comparatively, this is a very, very, large butcher's bill for Marlborough. It also was a, one of the main aspects of that, or one of the causes was the fact that he was forced into a position where he had to, had to assault without preparing the ground, without uh, bombarding the enemy for a significant amount of time or starving them or anything like that. He just had to make these assaults. And it, it appears as though had they, had the French and Bavarians had another 12 to 24 hours, the fort would have been impregnable. Uh, it seems like they would have done enough to make it so that unless the entire Grand Alliance army was there and just overwhelmed the fort, they, the 22,000, 23,000 men that Marlborough had on hand would not have been able to take the Schellenberg Heights had Count Darko another 12 to 24 hours to, to work on the defenses. So it's a huge victory for Marlborough, but it's, an, it's a costly one. It is a massive defeat for Bavaria and France because now the next few weeks will be spent laying waste to the Bavarian countryside. Marlborough doesn't necessarily want to do this, but he, again, one of the reasons that they're there at all is because they had to figure out a way to get the Bavarians on the side of the Grand Alliance. Uh, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire wrote to uh, Marlborough saying, quote, nothing can be more glorious than the celerity and vigor with which you forced the camp of the enemy at Donnerworth, end quote. And that's, again, that's a recognition of a great victory, but it's useless if it doesn't force the Bavarians over to the Grand Alliance. What ends up happening is the Grand Alliance forces run around Bavaria, burning, raping, pillaging, plundering, doing the things that armies do, and laying general waste to the Bavarian countryside. And Marlborough takes some heat for it. Historically, he's, uh, it's, it's hurt his reputation, but he really didn't believe that there was another way to, to get this uh country the bavarians to figure out 
that they need to be on his side. He wrote a friend saying, quote, We are advancing into the heart of Bavaria to destroy the country and oblige the elector one way or the other to a compliance, end quote. So really it is a matter of, I don't want to do this, but if you're forcing me, I'm going to do it right. The Battle of Schellenberg is the appetizer for what eventually will be the decisive battle of the War of the Spanish Succession, one of them at least, and it is the signature battle in the story of Marlborough. It is the Battle of Blenheim. We will cover that in a two-part series over the next couple of weeks. Please rate, review, and subscribe. I appreciate you guys listening, hanging in there. I know I run long all the time, but I just get so into some of the little details. So I appreciate you and your patience. Uh, I understand that uh, I can probably ramble. <laughs> so I, I, I appreciate you listening. All right. Thank you again. Next week, Battle of Blenheim. Check out on Mondays for the episodes to drop. We are on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We'll be posting some pictures of the battlefield maps for Schellenberg on those. So definitely check that out. All right. Have a good one.